0: Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to The Ongoing History of New Music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, before we start the show today, I want to tell you about something brand new we're launching with our friends at Apple Podcasts called The Ongoing History of New Music Unlimited. For $3.49 a month, $3.49, which is less than the price of your morning coffee, you can now get access to the full archive of our shows ad-free Plus, you'll get brand new episodes two days early and special bonus episodes. It's Ongoing History Unlimited, and it's available right now, only on Apple Podcasts. In the days before COVID, I was always on the road. If it wasn't a music conference in Singapore, it was an interview in London. Maybe it was the Junos in, well, wherever, or a concert in Los Angeles, This means I have seen more than my fair share of hotel rooms, everything from five-star luxury spots to sub-one-star establishments that come with a complimentary dead hooker under the bed. This also means I've developed a certain attitude towards hotels. First thing you do when you get into the room is ditch the bedspread. They are never, ever cleaned. Just tear it off, pile it in the corner, and then wash your hands. And then also try not to imagine what's happened on that couch in the corner. At night, there's the sound of the air conditioning, the noises from the hallway. What are they doing in that room next door? And of course, I always get a room next to the elevator. Then in the restaurant and the bar and the fitness room, you run into fellow guests. Who are they? What are they doing there? What's their story? Occasionally, I'd find out. Like the time I ran across a Nobel Prize winner who was living in this Asian hotel because he was too ill to fly back home. Hotels are fascinating places where things happen that don't happen anywhere else. Strangers come together from everywhere to do things that they might not do anywhere else. So, no wonder so many books and TV shows and movies are set in hotels. I am fascinated with these places. Okay, here's the segue. Rock stars spend a lot of time on the road, meaning that they spend a lot of nights in hotels. And some of the rooms they stay in end up becoming part of rock and roll history. Let's take a look at some of them, shall we? This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is a travelogue of sorts. We're going to spin around the world looking at hotel rooms made famous by the rock stars that stayed there, lived there, and died there. Like I said, I'm I'm fascinated with the culture of hotels. A couple of years ago, I was in Moscow. And I stayed at the Hotel National, which is right across the street from the Kremlin. Outside a room on the second floor is a plaque stating that Vladimir Lenin stayed there in 1917 before he assumed power. That's cool. Room 306 at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis is historic, too. It was outside that door that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968. Now let's talk about music. When I was in Berlin, I walked past the Hotel Eldon Kepensky. I looked up at the balcony at the presidential suite, which ran about 16K a night at the time. And that's where Michael Jackson dangled his son, Prince Michael II, over the edge. Closer to home, there's room 1742 at the Fairmont Queen Elizabeth in Montreal. That's where John and Yoko held their famous bed-in back in 1969. There's the room at what was called the Harbor Castle Hilton in Toronto, where Keith Richards was busted for heroin and coke in February 1977. I've never been able to find out exactly which room it was. So, uh, anyone know? L.A. has to be the capital of decadent hotel room behavior. Room 105 at the Highland Gardens Hotel in Hollywood is where Janice Joplin OD'd on October 4th, 1970. Bungalow 3 at the Chateau Marmont is where John Belushi died. I've hung out in that hotel and the stories just ooze out of the walls. And then there's the Sunset Marquee, a hangout that goes back more than 50 years. I've stayed there a couple of times. On the last occasion, I was sitting at the bar, having a very overpriced cocktail when Billy Bob Thornton sidled up on the stool next to me. The Sunset Marquis is purpose-built as a hotel for the entertainment industry and has continued to evolve in that direction. For example, there's a subterranean tour bus garage. Drivers can pull in late at night, plug in power, and wait until everybody wakes up for check-in. There was a state-of-the-art recording studio down in the basement. I've been inside. Pretty amazing. But the rest of it is pretty simple, though. It's not horrible. I mean, the official motto of the hotel is rooms that rock stars don't have the heart to trash. And these rock stars tend to pick the second-floor villas for security. Keith Richards likes those rooms. And so did Dave Godd of Depeche Mode. Now, I don't know which room it was. I've asked, but nobody would tell me. But I'm pretty sure it was in a villa in the garden towards the back of the property and not the cheaper room I had above the lobby. It was here at the Sunset Marquis that Dave Gon died for a couple of minutes on May 28, 1996. At the time, Dave was living in a paranoid drug hell. He tried rehab, but that wasn't working. And in one of the villas that night, he injected a powerful speedball, a mix of red rum, heroin, and coke. And he suffered a massive overdose. A woman, and no one knows who, but it might have been someone he'd met for the first time in the bar off the lobby a few hours earlier, called 911. The dealer, who was in the room at the time, took off. When the paramedics arrived, Dave had stopped breathing and was in cardiac arrest. He was clinically dead. And there was a six-minute window where no one knew if he would make it. But he did, and that episode was one of the things that finally scared him straight. I only wish I knew which room it happened in. If you try walking in my shoes, you stumble in my footsteps. Keep the same on the tight end. If you try walking in my shoes. Dave Gahn lived another day after dying in that villa room at the Sunset Marquee in Los Angeles. Michael Hutchins wasn't so lucky. He met his end in room 524 of the Ritz-Carlton in Sydney, Australia. November 22nd, 1997 seemed normal enough. NXS was back in Australia to film a TV special commemorating the group's 20th anniversary. And afterward, Michael went out for an Indian dinner with his father and stepmother. Everything was just fine. After dinner, sometime around 10.30 that night, Hutchins went back to his suite. Like I said, room 524, Joking with three girls in the elevator on the way. Later, an ex girlfriend and her boyfriend met Hutchins at the bar, and then they went up to his room around 2 the next morning. That little party lasted until around 4. Here's where it gets murky. We know that Hutchins made some phone calls over the next couple of hours, but reached only answering machines. Sometime later, he showed up at the front desk looking really rough, asking the desk clerk to mail some letters for him. Back in 524, He apparently went into some kind of rage, trashing the room, throwing about five different prescription pills all over the place, and apparently breaking his hand by punching a wall. Sometime between 9.50 and 10.30 on the morning of November 23, 1997, Michael fastened a leather belt to a doorknob and hanged himself. He was found by the maid at 11.50 a.m. when she tried to get into the room. She couldn't because the body was blocking the door. There was no suicide note and the most popular verdict was autoerotic asphyxiation. Michael Hutchins was 37. The coroner found that his fingers were dark with nicotine stains and that there was one cigarette burn so deep that you could actually see bone. Investigators also found what appeared to be a scrap of a recently written song. But they, along with all kinds of other personal effects, were packed away, never to be seen again. What really happened in room 524 of the Ritz-Carlton in Sydney? The answer is, we can only guess. I was standing, you were there, two worlds colliding, and they could never, ever tear us apart. We now move on to room 516 of the Embassy Hotel on Bayswater Road in London. This is the last known address of Richie Edwards of the Manic Street Preachers. On February 1st, 1995, the day he and bandmate James Dean Bradfield were supposed to fly to the U.S. on a promo tour, he walked out of the hotel at 7 in the morning and disappeared forever. This is one of the greatest missing person mysteries in all of modern Britain. Every day for two weeks leading up to his disappearance, Richie withdrew 200 pounds from his bank account. So he had just under 3,000 pounds in cash, theoretically anyway. He left behind a packed suitcase, all his toiletries, and a bottle of Prozac. In the middle of the bed was a carefully wrapped box, apparently for a 19-year-old female friend. And next to it was a note that said, I love you. From the hotel, it appears that Richie drove his car back to his apartment in Cardiff, Wales. Some say he was later spotted at the passport office and then at a bus station. A taxi driver said he gave someone looking like Richie a tour through the area. On February 14th, two weeks after he walked out of that London hotel, his car was given a parking ticket at a service station. Three days after that, the car was declared abandoned. Upon looking inside, it appeared that someone had been living there for quite some time, but there was no sign of Richie. The best guess anyone had Is that he jumped off a nearby bridge, a popular suicide spot. Others believe that no, he's alive somewhere. India, the Canary Islands, maybe Thailand. Whatever the case, his family finally had him officially presumed dead in November 2008. The mystery that began in room 516 of the Embassy Hotel north of Hyde Park has never been solved. The Manic Street Preachers, back when Richie Edwards was still in the band. What happened in room 516 of the Embassy Hotel Bayswater in London? We don't know. More hotel room antics in just a second, with a visit to room 541 of the Excelsior Hotel in Rome. This program is all about hotel rooms that have gone down in history for interesting and often tragic and revolting reasons. There's room 342 at the Edgewater Hotel in Seattle, where the infamous shark episode took place involving members of Led Zeppelin and a groupie. That was July 27th, 1969. I'll leave it at that. Google it if you must. There's room eight at the Joshua Tree Inn in California. This is where Graham Parsons, ex of the birds, died of an overdose at age 26 on September 19th, 1973. His body was then spirited away by his road manager, He took the coffin from LAX so Graham could be cremated in the desert in a private ritual. If you know where to look, you can find a pile of stones known as Cap Rock, and that's apparently where it happened. If you're wondering, the Joshua Tree Inn is still open. And yes, you can still book Room 8, which is known as the Graham Parsons Room. The hotel's description reads, This is the room where the father of cosmic American music went from rock star to rock legend. Some say his spirit still lives. Bring your guitar and write songs. It's about 162 US per night. And then there's room 541 at the Excelsior Hotel in Rome. It was March 3rd, 1994. Nirvana was on a European tour. Kurt Cobain had suddenly come down with a throat issue and needed to rest, so a series of shows were canceled. Kurt also called Courtney Love a bunch of times, saying that he hated everything and everybody. He was extremely, extremely depressed. So, like a good wife, Courtney flew to Rome, where they met up at the Excelsior. On the night she arrived, they stayed in, ordering room service and a bottle of champagne, and then they went to bed. At 5.30 the following morning, Courtney awoke to find Kurt unconscious on the floor. In addition to all the alcohol, Kurt had apparently swallowed up to 50 Rohypnol pills. Normally, this is prescribed to people with terrible insomnia. Rohypno also has a reputation as a date-rape drug. An ambulance was called, and Kurt was transported to Umberto Polyclinic Hospital, where his stomach was pumped. From there, he was transferred to Rome American Hospital, which is where he regained consciousness. But in the interim, there was a lot of confusion and panic, and at one point, it was reported that Kurt had died. Now, he did leave a suicide note. Courtney later said, part of it read, My doctor says I would have to choose between life and death. I'm choosing death. When Kurt finally did manage to kill himself just over a month later, on April 5th, 1994, it was only natural to look back on the events in Rome as an attempted suicide. But there are those who maintain Kurt really wasn't serious about taking his own life, at least on that day. But in the end, it didn't really matter. Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, who very nearly died in room 541 of the Excelsior Hotel in Rome on March 3rd, 1994. Now we move to the MGM Grand in Detroit, room 1136. Soundgarden was on tour and had just finished a gig at the Fox Theater. Things were going well. Fans had been hoping for a reunion for years and it was finally happening. Here's everything we know. Chris walked off the stage at 11.15 p.m. The show was over. Encores were done. From there, he and his bodyguard, Martin Kristen walked back to the MGM Grand a few blocks away. They arrived at about 11.30. Chris was having trouble with his laptop, so once they got to his room, Martin helped him sort a few things out. Chris was feeling anxious, so he had some Ativan tablets with him. After Martin left him alone, Chris got a call from his wife, Vicky. She'd just been on the phone with Chris. He sounded groggy and was slurring his words, and he said that he'd taken an extra Ativan or two. That call was at 1135. As soon as she was off the phone, Vicky called Martin, asking him to check on Chris. She made that call at 1215 a.m. Martin found the room locked, and Chris wouldn't answer the door. At this point, he called hotel security for help in getting into the room, but they wouldn't help, saying that the room wasn't registered to him, so there was nothing they can do. So Martin kicked in the door of room 1136. Chris was nowhere to be found, but the bathroom door was locked. Chris kicked in that one, too, and found Chris on the floor with blood running from his mouth and a red exercise band around his neck. He'd hanged himself. A paramedic was called, and then Martin tried to revive Chris. The hotel paramedic was called at 12.56. The band was removed from his neck, and the paramedic started CPR. Another EMS unit arrived. There was more CPR, but at 1.30, Chris was pronounced dead. So, what happened with Chris between about 11:35 and 12:15 when Martin broke into the hotel room? What was going through his mind? What was he doing? We'll never know. Soundgarden and Chris Cornell, who died on March 3, 2017 in room 1136 of the MGM Grand Hotel in Detroit. In a ghoulish twist, it took all of 24 hours before people started calling the hotel requesting to book that room. Let's talk about more infamous hotel rooms. Jimi Hendrix was found dead in the Samarkand Hotel in London on September 18, 1970. He choked on his own vomit after taking way too many sleeping pills. John Edwistle, bass player for The Who, died in room 658 of the Hard Rock Cafe Hotel in Las Vegas on June 27, 2002. It was an undiagnosed heart condition, according to the coroner, but uh, the cocaine didn't help. And then there was Whitney Houston, found dead of a drug overdose in suite 434 of the Beverly Hills Hilton. She'd slipped under the water of her bathtub and drowned. Something similar seems to have happened to Dolores O'Riordan of the Cranberries. In January 2018, she flew from New York to London to work on a solo project she called Dark and to talk about the possibility of a new Cranberries album. She checked into Room 2005 at the London Hilton on Park Lane in Mayfair. At 1.12 a.m. on the morning of January 15, 2018, she left a voicemail for a friend expressing a lot of enthusiasm for the way the recording for Dark was going. At 2 a.m., she called her mother and things seemed fine. And that was the last anyone ever heard from her. Later that morning, a woman from housekeeping found her submerged in the bathtub, her nose and mouth completely below the waterline. There were numerous empty bottles of alcohol from the minibar, all of them empty. Plus, there was an empty bottle of champagne and a number of prescription pills. A toxicology report said that the drugs weren't an issue. But Dolores' blood alcohol at her time of death was 033 That's more than four times the number that would get you busted for drunk driving. The cause of death was ruled as alcohol toxicity leading to an accidental drowning. She was 46. song Dolores O'Riordan wrote to her family, longing for a return to a simpler sort of life. More hotel room stories in just a second. Here are a few more musicians who met their end in a hotel room. In 1883, Richard Wagner, the German composer, died in the Palazzo Vendramin in Venice shortly after he completed his final opera. It appears to have been a heart attack. Corey Monteith, a star of the TV show Glee, was found dead at the Fairmont Pacific Rim Hotel in Vancouver on July 13, 2013. Cocaine overdose, apparently. Divine, the fabulous drag queen, was found dead at the Regency Plaza Suites in Los Angeles. Heart failure. Rob Pilatus, one half of the disgraced pop duo Millie Vanilli, was found dead in a German hotel room on April 3, 1995. An OD of prescription drugs and alcohol. And then there's probably the most famous punk rock hotel room death of them all. Nancy Spungen, girlfriend of ex-sex pistol Sid Vicious, at the Chelsea Hotel on October 12, 1978. The cause of death was a single stab wound to her stomach. But who stabbed her? And why? Nancy had led a rough life from the beginning. When she was born, the umbilical cord was wrapped around her neck, causing oxygen deprivation. She was such an unruly kid that her pediatrician placed her on barbiturates by the time she was three months old. She apparently tried to kill a babysitter with a pair of scissors. At 15, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and although being very good academically, she was expelled from college for doing drugs and storing stuff that had been stolen by other students. Nancy supported herself through prostitution from the time she was 17. Moving to New York, she became a groupie, hanging around with the Ramones, the New York Dolls, Aerosmith, and others. And then came the Sex Pistols. Nancy glommed on to Sid, and they were inseparable for about 19 months, doing drugs all the time until she was killed. Okay, wait, hang on. On August 24th, 1974, she and Sid moved into the notorious, infamous Chelsea Hotel in New York, Room 100. The drug taking continued. Lots of heroin. They were both junkies. And they were also fans of a powerful citadel called tuanol. Lots of sketchy people came and went out of room 100. On the night of October 11th, 1978, several people paid a visit. And it said that Sid took up to 50 all tablets. That completely zonked him out. I mean, that would put a horse out for hours. At around 2.30 in the morning of October the 12th, Nancy asked a guy named Rockets Redglare, a bodyguard for Sid, who also worked as the couple's drug connection, to get some delaudit. That's a serious opioid painkiller. Then around 7.30, female moans were heard coming from room 100. At around 10, Sid called the front desk for help. And when people showed up, they found Nancy dead, stabbed in the stomach, lying at a weird angle underneath the bathroom sink. She'd bled to death. So who did it? Well, at first, Sid confessed, but with 30 or fifty and in his system, that seemed unlikely. Was it a bungled double suicide? Unclear. And where was all that money that they had in the room? Where did it go? Doesn't matter because Sid was arrested, charged with Nancy's murder, and then died of a heroin overdose before things could go to trial. A theory that's come to light is that the murderer was Rocket's red glare. Nancy, allegedly, got into a fight with him, when he tried to steal some of the couple's cash. And then he stabbed her with a knife, a Bowie knife that Sid had bought before leaving. It's also said that Rockets confessed to killing Nancy while drinking at CBGB, but we'll never know because he died in 2007. But back to the hotel room. Does room 100 still exist? That answer is complicated. The Chelsea stopped being a hotel and is supposed to be turned into condos. As of early 2022, that conversion has been finished. So that's point one. Point two is that room 100 disappeared long ago. Kind of, sort of. Years ago, the hotel renovated and room 100 was merged with room 103. It became the bedroom of room 103. The old entrance door was removed too. So the space was there, but the designation room 100 no longer existed. It was all part of room 103. Hope that clears things up. Almost this entire show has been about people who have died in hotel rooms. Let's talk about a few things that are a little less um, fatal. The king of hotel room demolition was Keith Moon of the Who. His resume of destruction is very very long, but the most famous event took place on the occasion of Moon's twenty-first birthday. It was August twenty-third, nineteen sixty-seven. There was a crazy party at the Holiday Inn in Flint, Michigan. The hotel. Was a disaster. And legend is that a Lincoln Continental driven by Keith ended up in the swimming pool. That's where that rock and roll cliche began. Total damage was $24,000, that's in 1967 dollars, and about $200,000 today. And The Who is still banned from staying at any Holiday Inn. There was the Hyatt Continental on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. It was Rockstar Central for years. When Led Zeppelin came to town, They'd rent out full floors where all sorts of weirdness took place. In 1972, Keith Richards, who was staying in room 1015, decided that he would throw his TV out the window. And that's where that trope came from. In December 1993, Nirvana destroyed a hotel room in St. Paul, Minnesota. They were really, really drunk, and the damage there was $19,000, which is about $37,000 today. In 1998, Marilyn Manson and his crew went to town at the Sheraton in Poughkeepsie, New York, Four rooms were destroyed. They even set some fires. Total damage, $25,000. Fine, I I can see all those people doing weird things to hotel rooms, but what about Florence Welch? Yeah, Florence of Florence and the Machine. In 2012, she went drinking with Kanye West. Far too many martinis were consumed. Somewhere along the way, she ripped her dress, chipped a tooth, and accidentally set fire to her room at the Bowery Hotel because she passed out, leaving a candle burning. Fortunately, the damage is only a couple hundred dollars, but it could have been a lot worse. And let me leave you with this. Although Oasis had plenty of confrontation in hotels around the planet, they wrote at least one song about a hotel. If you go back to their earliest recordings, you'll find a single called Columbia. This is about a hotel, the Columbia Hotel. In fact, it had the reputation of being the rock and roll hotel in the UK. It's in London, in Paddington. And Oasis stayed there when they were recording their first songs. They got baked on acid, and plenty of furniture was thrown out the window, some of which landed on the manager's car. and uh, and uh, yeah, they were they were banned. but they still wrote this song. Hotels are fascinating places. Like I said at the beginning, hotels are places where strangers are housed in the same spot. And sometimes strange things happen behind those closed doors. Hotels offer a special kind of privacy and anonymity. And when you're selling that... Uh, you know, all kinds of things can happen. There were still hotel room trashings, but they've been in steep decline for years. Back in the day, record labels turned something of a blind eye to such antics. Because if the act was selling enough records, well, that forgave plenty of sins. And besides, the money for damages was just deducted from that act's future royalties. These days, though, with album sales a fraction of what they used to be, such behavior is prohibitively expensive. These days, I am told, requests are for things like blackout curtains so the artist can sleep during the day, extra hangers for their clothes, late checkout privileges, and use of a spa. I'll give you an example. If you're in London, check out the K-West Hotel. It's close to the offices of a couple of major record labels, as well as the BBC and Heathrow. Musicians make up about 25% of that hotel's business. If you want more of these programs, there are hundreds of podcasts available through all the usual platforms. Just download and go. If you need regular updates on music news and recommendations, there's my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. And if you want to meet up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, we can do that too. Email can go to alan at Allencross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.